Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Oh, you would not believe the kind of day I'm having, Jonathan. For starters, oh, what's my, god, my goddamn secretary, he, he wore tennis shoes to the office. With how much uh, my father pays him, he could at least save up and have the decency to bore me with a pair of Allen Edmonds. And, uh, and Ash, uh, I, I know I can ask you this because this is 100% a visual medium. <laughs> is, is, is that a new suit you're wearing? Oh, oh! I'm so, I'm so glad you noticed. I, I wanted, I wanted to put one over at the boys in the office, so I'm wearing Brooks Brothers today. How garish of me! How gauche! How gauche! <laughs> we're gonna be joking about this one for months. Now we were supposed to record, but um, I have to run. I have reservations in twenty minutes. So, if we can get through this, that would be wonderful. Oh, well, where'd you get reservations for? Uh, Indochine, naturally. Oh, 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 lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm dining at the Dorsia later tonight. Perhaps I'll see you at Nell's afterwards for drinks. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're just, we're just here conjuring the worst imaginable timeline when you and I are like C-suite executives. <laughs> Hello, us, everyone. Let, let us close that hellish portal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Slamming, slamming that door shut immediately. Uh, yes, today, everyone, hello, good morning, good afternoon, good night. This is Horror Vanguard, your number one podcast for CC... <laughs> your number one podcast for me not being able to talk, as well <laughs> as lifestyle tips for the C-suite elite. My name is Ash. I'm joined, as always, by my co-ghost and venture capitalist entrepreneur, at the Licorice Guy. How's it going, John? Hey, everybody. Good to be here. <laughs> Uh, we oh, are t- oh dear. <laughs> we are we are talking about the um, honestly genuinely incredible Mary Harron film based on the controversial novel by Brett Eston Ellis. Uh, we're talking about American Psycho. Uh, it has become it has become something of a meme. Um, it's it's very uh, mostly because I think Christian Bale has a very gifable face. Uh, so there's like, there's like all of the gifts of like him striding through his office with his headphones on. There's the mm-hmm. gift of him like po- pointing to the, the, uh, the, the album cover. Um, but for people who have maybe only seen the reaction gifts and have not seen the, uh, film itself or come across the book, would you mind telling me, uh, it's time for the, pre- your presentation. Would you mind uh, telling me the rest of the senior vice presidents of investing and murders and executions? What is American Psycho all about? What does it mean to have style, to become cultured? American Psycho and films with similar characters like the narrator from Fight Club use a hot couture signifier to establish a character defined by their material relationships to cultural objects. This kind of alienation is easy to point out. Patrick Bateman isn't a character, but a caricature. He's the ultimate synthesis of everything that defined the late 80s yuppie, a young, upwardly mobile professional. He has no internality, only a set stock of references to external objects. If American Psycho is about 80s culture, then we're still in the long 1980s. 
This leads us to a doubled layer of hell. A hell that, rather than being a distinct and separate layer invoking something akin to Dante's Inferno, merely intensifies by being folded onto itself. For Patrick Bateman, hell is not other people, hell is the self. One way of seeing Sartre's famous line is to read it through Marx's alienation. Hell is other people because we become mere objects in the eyes of others. However, what happens when this deepens and we become objects in our own eyes? Patrick Bateman is, after all, a man with no internality save for what can be attached to his shell like a hermit crab. We internalize capitalist realism. And by doing so, we jettison any historical or material identity and replace it with a purchased affect. Making fun of Huey Lewis in the news or designer business cards is low-hanging fruit. The Patrick Bateman of 2021 would be lecturing an unsuspecting victim on his Funko Pop collection, discussing the craft of translating the Hulk into vinyl or the nuance of creating a Freddy Krueger Dorbs. We fill our internality up with Funko brand merchandise, a molten plastic version of Marx's Galerte for the 2020s. Our identities are not grown, they are merely extruded. We no longer have a soul. We only have Funko Pops. Join us as we discuss American Psycho. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, American Psycho is about how bad Funko Pops are. Uh, get ready for the next hour of me saying that. Yep. Uh, once again, we continue our staunch anti-Funko Pops line. It's the only correct position on this topic. Uh, everyone else will eventually catch up with us. Um, this is not an exit uh, there is no, there is no way out where we will allow you to cling on uh, to these purchased affects, these investments in libidinal pleasure that leave us empty, lacking in subjectivity, and living the the, the kind of hollow, half human life that Patrick Bateman stumbles his way through, disguising it with Valentino suits. Let us begin uh, on our, our elevator ride up through the business offices of discourse on the first floor as we enter the formalism zone. So where would you like, where would you like to start today's uh, business agenda in the formalism zone? We, we got to get these brass tacks out of the way so we can get into the more fun things. Yeah. Ab- like firstly, I think this is a, this is inevitably, this is a deeply stylized film, right? It looks uh, credits, Mary Harron, uh, as the director and I believe the co-writer on the script. Um, but this film just looks amazing. Um, the opening credit sequence with drops of blood or coolie being dropped onto restaurant plates. Great juxtaposition. Love it. Uh, I love the attention to detail in terms of like costuming, shot selection, locations. Um, this, is, this, is just a, this is just a very stylish and cool looking movie. It is so. This is one of the things that I find about this movie to be really interesting is that formally, like what we're seeing on screen, even how the camera moves, right? What this film is at, at its very core, the bones of this film, if you'll use a pun from the movie itself, um, it, it's very subtle. It's very minimal. It's very clean. It, it perfectly reflects patrick bateman's uh precision design business card it reflects the clean lines of their suits it reflects this kind of like even the buildings they work in right these sheer glass edifices with with geometrically perfect rectangle windows everywhere 
you know like like the the movie through and through is the culture that patrick bateman is connected into yeah absolutely so um i i kind of have like a a a, i don't know a, a, a question that i would like to sort of offer to you which is that mary harron has described this um as a feminist film uh Brett Eston Ellis's novel when it came out was uh, in some places not published uh, and in quite a lot of other places was decried for its graphic and extensive descriptions of violence against women, uh, which goes into brutal detail, which um, I, will, I, will, I will not elaborate on further. Um, and I, I wanted to know what you think. What do you, what do you think of that tension? What do you think of the claim that this is a feminist film? Well, I, I think I think this probably starts with us kind of talking about um, Mary Heron. You know, like like Mary, Mary Heron is a, a very outspoken feminist, right? And when I say feminist here, I don't mean like in some kind of platonic and perfected sense that she is the embodiment of feminism as an ideology, but rather that this is someone who is very engaged with this as a theoretical framework through which you can view the world and make art. Um, you know, like her first breakout movie is I Shot Andy Warhol, which is all about yeah. Valerie Solanus's attempt to assassinate Andy Warhol. And, and part of me was thinking about the scum manifesto when I watched American Psycho, right? Uh, the Scum yeah, Manifesto uh, was Valerie. If, if you don't know, the Scum Manifesto is Valerie Solanus's essentially her manifesto, and and there's like there's some debate about whether or not it's serious. Uh, the gist of it is uh, it argues that males are the inferior sex because we lack the Y chromosome, uh, cis males uh, to, in contemporary parlance. And there's some debate about whether or not uh, Valerie Solanus was serious. Like, is this a parody text? Or was Valerie Solanus committed to this as, as an ideological framework? And, and that is what I was thinking about while watching American Psycho, right? I was like, is, do, do I navigate this with this kind of like parodic framework, right? Like, is this, is this comedic, you know? Or do I, do I navigate this as a 100% uh, sterile in its sincerity view of this kind of patrocentric business culture. Yeah. Um, I think a really interesting point of comparison is that the, that one of the original directors who was attached to this uh, was Oliver Stone. And I'm like, fuck, can you imagine Oliver Stone directing American Psycho? Like, it would be like just... It, it it would think that Patrick Bateman was so cool. That that's that that's what that film would be like. It would think that Patrick Bateman was so cool, and do, it would be you, kind of in love with the idea of Patrick Bateman. Well, it would have just been uh, Natural Born Killers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so all, all it would have been it would have been Natural Born Killers, except for in, instead of them being like like scummy drifters, they would have been like C suite execs. Yeah. And the thing that I really love about this movie is that the film understands precisely what kind of people it's talking about. Oh, and, yeah. And it doesn't like hold, like, it shows you all of the kind of like stylistic trappings and the advantages and the money and the power. 
and it reveals them to be these like profoundly incurious, deeply parochial, reactionary misogynists. And I'm not even talking about Bateman here. I'm talking about all of the other men that he's surrounded by, like in, who are incredibly intellectually narrow-minded, uh, and just not. These are not cool dorks. These yeah. Are, these, that's the whole point, right? And so this is one of the things that got me thinking about Solanus' Scum Manifesto, right? Um, because one of the ways of looking at the Scum Manifesto is like, okay, this is an extremist text. It, it has extreme stances on, on like feminist political issues, right? And one of the kind of utilities of that is, is that like by encountering something so jagged, it will pop you out of, of the kind of groove of hegemonic thinking. And so like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Bateman, right? Who is, who is unhinged in, in his appraisal of the self and, and his being completely cored out as a person. But he's the only person in his orbit. He's the only person in the C-suite exec world who, who knows something's wrong. Right, right. Yeah. So something's something's off about the world he's in, and he has no framework to handle it from. So, so he he becomes this extreme thing, you know that that that's cutting through the world around him, right? Because it's the world around him is so un, like exactly what you said, uncurious. It's so sedate. They're so full of themselves. They're so self certain. There is the the only thing they notice is is uh like this kind of aspirational social mobility around them the the oh is that is that is that that executive over there i should go talk to him that's the only thing people in this world seem to ever be able to realize with the exception of one single character who who we'll talk about later uh the the people's hero of this movie oh yeah um, yeah uh, it'll be funny. I, I'm, now I'm curious to think if we just thought of the same character because I realized there's like maybe two people, one more problematic than the other who fit in that. But we'll get into that later. But anyway, that's like like so. I don't know. Like a lot of my space, well, my, my mental space, while I was thinking about this movie was in relation to like I shot Andy Warhol and the Scum Manifesto and kind of like that feminist zeitgeist, kind of like c coming at it from that particular cultural milieu of feminism. Yeah. And one thing I really like about Haran in all of her work is that uh, there was an interview I saw where, where she's talking about being Canadian and says that unlike American filmmakers, she tries not to be moralistic, right? So she's, she's interested in this, the, the kind of ambiguity uh, rather than going, ah, well, this is good and bad. And it's like, uh, you understand that when you kind of pay attention to the fact that this film desperately tries to make Bateman and Van Patten and Bryce and all the rest of them seem cool, but can't help but remind you, actually, like, look at these people. Why do you aspire to be this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is something that I appreciate about, like, I know there's, there's like a ton of good criticism for Mary Heron's filmography, and uh, I shot Andy Warhol, and especially The Scum Manifesto. Um, and I'm definitely not like holding these texts up as paragons or whatever. Uh, but like, I, I do appreciate things that are honest about their politics and then attempt to grapple the world from that standpoint yeah. rather than having kind of a, uh, a, a wishy-washy both sides, uh, uh, you know, like the, the CNN article version of American Psycho would be so displeasing to me. Oh, I, God. I much prefer imagine? this. <laughs> 
We got uh, equal yeah. quotes from uh, Patrick Bateman and the relatives of the people he murdered to make sure that we're fair. Um, or yeah, that that those would be the two choices, right? Either make it into this kind of like nightmarish, uh, heteronormal, like het cis male fantasy, or you or you make it into this very moralizing thing, or you actually do what Haran does and actually go, actually, let's kind of like strip away all of this aesthetic and you show the kind of emptiness the hollowness the mm-hmm. the, the the even collapse of identity right which is the really kind of horrifying thing and i think your point that you made earlier about like bateman realizes this in some way like the famous line where he says there is an idea of a patrick bateman some yeah. kind of abstra- abstraction that is the universal condition it's just, it's just we only get to hear him realize it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to highlight here that this isn't, like, he's saying that as he's pulling off his, his like, whatever it was, like a honey herbal face mask that is part of his skincare routine. Yeah. And that is something that, like, I keyed into that so hard. Um, I, I used to I used to be like deep in the skincare routine uh, a nightmare zone where you have the full uh, retinue of products lined up. You know, I was doing. Oh, OK, like dr- drop the skincare routine. I'll do mine. I've <laughs> I've, I've, I've entirely abandoned it. I, I now use uh, two products. Uh, one one is an eczema safe face wash and the other is an eczema safe uh, uh, oatmeal based lotion. Um, I, I have I have jettisoned my my entire skincare routine, right? Because it was, it's uh, 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 that that part of Pat. And this is kind of what I was talking about in the Precy, right? Like it's not just Funko Pops, you know. Like we're, we're, when we all have the forty product skincare routine, we're just doing the opening of American Psycho. You know, it's just a consumerist affect. Some skin skincare, of course, is incredibly important. You should hydrate, right? You should you should actively use uh, a sun sun tanning lotion, right, to prevent yourself from being destroyed by the death orb that is an enemy to horror vanguard and all of our vampire kin. Uh, <laughs> long live the moon and its eternal darkness, lit with a silver glory. Um, but like like that, like like in our cultural moment, like how much do we talk and joke about skincare routines and like. I connected so hard with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's this, this, this I think is what makes it such an interesting film because it is, um, it revels in that interstitial state, right? Mm-hmm. This, this idea of going, uh, you're shown a surface and then you're showing, shown a kind of depth, but really you're shown a surface. And then when that surface is lifted, you're shown nothing. Yeah. Like there's like there's nothing behind it, um, I, and the book dials this up to eleven, where it just at, at various points just becomes lists of of brands and items mm. for like pages upon pages upon pages, and it's like you try and peel that away. It's like you're trying to tear that away to get to to get to a, a kind of quote unquote reality, but it doesn't exist. It's not there anymore. Um, so let's 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 take a let's take our final stop in the formalism zone here. Then let's let's uh, discuss the differences between the novel and, and the film. I know some some people on Twitter were asking us about the kind of distinctions between the two, and where where would you start with that? Um, the novel is a lot harder. To, is uh, honestly, it's the one novel I don't recommend to people. 
Um, I've read it. I've read it a couple of times. I've written about it. Um, it is uh, it is brutally intense. Um, like the, this film is 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 violent, but it's not particularly gory. Um, which I think is to its credit, because if it tried to uh, to faithfully put on screen everything that is in the novel, this film never would have been released. Um, the novel is uh, Sardian in its in its uh, in its violence, in its focus on gore, on bodily suffering, uh, on sexually inflected torture, um, and it dials like it's there. There are there are there are scenes in there where I've I've had to stop reading it. Um, and it, it makes the kind of critique, to be honest, I think it makes the critique that the, the book makes, it is made in a lot more crude terms. Um, I actually think as a kind of social satire, the film is better. I completely agree with that. I, I think, um, you, you know, like there, there, there's a, there, there's this kind of trite grinding over like, oh, is the book is always better than the movie. You should always endeavor to read the book, then watch the movie. And, and I think that's just, that's completely misguided. You know, like that, that is such a, a broken way of an, a, analyzing the, the transformative space between the novel and the film, you know, like that, that, that doesn't actually tackle what it means to interpret a text. Uh, this, this is one of the occasions wherein the book is absolutely the inferior cultural object. The, the Heron's film just, just takes takes the material right to, to takes the objects from Ellis's novel and elevates them so extremely like like takes these things to such a new height yeah um you know it was written when Ellis was relatively young and you can kind of tell it's it's like reading it you're sort of like okay I get it I, I get it <laughs> I get I get I get the point that you make it like it's not quite as clever as it th- as it seems to think that it is and um, especially from from a young Ellis career, like he he has a bad problem with being an edge lord for his entire career, but it is amazingly worse in his early career. I you know I I I would never tell people not to read it. I just I just won't recommend it. Um, if people want to seek it out, uh, there are there are plenty of spoilers out there on the internet, and there are plenty of uh uh. uh Read it beware, basically. You know, abandon all hope if you enter that novel. <laughs> I, I, on the other hand, will actively tell you not to read it. Read the Wikipedia pop plot summary and then go watch Heron's movie, which is infinitely superior. You have a finite amount of time to live on this world, and do you want to waste all of those hours reading a mediocre novel when there's just literally a better movie out there? <laughs> I'll, I'll take I'll take the counter stance to that one. I'll just actively tell you to ignore the hell out of that book and watch the movie instead. Then shall we shall we uh, go up to the next uh, level of the building? This is the one. This is this is. We were talking before we started recording, and um, for for leftists who talk about horror movies, sometimes when you're watching a film, let's say like Troll Two, you have to kind of work, right? You have to. We we had to we had to dig we had to dig deep. That episode, we were both not feeling well. We were both coming up with some, uh, like, dredging our minds to find the, the the deepest, darkest pit from out which we could pull our takes. And occasionally you find films like this where you just go, oh, yeah, it's a documentary. <laughs> like, okay, there we go. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, that's, I mean, that's all there is to it. 
Amer- American Psycho isn't a, a work of fiction. This is a this is a fictionalized documentary. You know, like this isn't some highly fictitious representation of executive level culture. This is just the thing in and of itself. Perhaps a little dated, but we are in the long 1980s. You know, like we have not yet grown from that decade. We are still in it. Sure, a lot of like we you know we're 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 no longer wood paneling our walls and cocaine is no longer in vogue as as the drug of choice for the technocratic elite but but those are just that that's trappings that's paint we're still in the same building we just keep painting it yeah absolutely i mean this is this is not i i i guess i'm being a bit glib when i call it a documentary but this is horror film as diagnosis right this is uh uh exactly exactly what what we've been talking about it is a uh not a judgment but a a kind of verdict as it were it's not it's not a sorry it's not a moral judgment it's a description of the current events twisted you know made 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 into a kind of like uh honed into a fine point but there is the 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 best thing i uh, that that kind of really drives this home is the fact that there is no kind of human mind anymore or, or if there is, there's certainly mm-hmm. no access access to it. You know what is it? There's that great Bateman line where he says, "I'm just, I'm just looking to like make a connection with someone," um, and it's like, well, there's like you're not capable of that. Like this is not a world in which genuine human interpersonal connection happens anymore, right? Absolutely, and and one of the ways I wanted to talk about this issue is how Patrick Bateman talks about art. Um, yeah. Specifically music. Um, the, the way, the way that he kind of like, and this maybe gets us ahead a little bit in talking about the music in the film, but, but the way that Patrick Bateman does, he, he's, he's, he is a, a music critic essentially what is what he's doing. He is, he is some kind of interpreter of the artistic, you know, we, we are treated to like countless scenes where he's like either about to murder someone or like um, he'll hire some sex workers for the evening. And the majority of the evening will be them sitting around while he talks about Whitney Houston or Huey Lewis in the news. And and like one of the things I was like, I was like, wow, these are awful like praises he's writing for albums. Like the way he's talking about this is like... <laughs> What what if what if my praises were just entirely anhedonic, you know? Like, and it's and it's like he he can only do advertising, right? Even when he's talking yes. about emotion and affect and feeling, the way he talks about these albums is is, is like Lincoln Park's Hybrid Theory is one of the most emotively descriptive <laughs> albums of all time. The way that Chester Bennington is able to convey his internal feelings speaks volumes to our current moment. You know, like, like that, like there's something, there's something there, right? Like, like that, that is how you talk about art when you want to talk about art, but it's missing the, so what it's missing that deeper connection. It's missing that next level elevation. You know, it's perfectly serviceable to, to just be like Lincoln Park's hybrid theory is, is a wonderful album because it's, it's just a gutting journey through sorrow and loneliness and isolation. Uh, but you, you need you could say that about a lot of things. What does it mean to say that about hybrid theory? What, what is it, what is the album communicating back to us? What are we saying to it? That's where you go. That's the next horizon. If you just stop there, it's just kind of ads. 
so there, there, yeah, exactly. There's, there's another way of thinking about this, right? Which is like, what is art in all of its capacious, multitudinous forms for? And I think, to me anyway, one of the incredible things about art, almost any work of art, is its ability to take us beyond the limits of our own subjectivity, right? To allow us to encounter the world in a radically new way. Um, however, all of the aesthetics, all of the, the aesthetic signifiers, and this is hugely true of the music and the film especially, are not any kind of transformative thing, but are signifiers of a cultural exclusivity, right? So uh, when he uh, smashes an axe into Jared Leto's uh, face whilst talking about Huey Lewis in the news, um, he talks about it um, in a way that kind of excludes everybody else who hasn't heard it. And then, then later on, when a, another character picks up the album and goes, hey, you listen to Huey Lewis? He's like revolted by the idea that he might kind of share cultural tastes, right, with anybody else, especially someone who's perceived as being kind of in a different socioeconomic position than he is. And it's like, th those are the two great things about art, right, which is its universality uh, and its ability to kind of reach everyone and anyone and its ability to take us out of our atomized mm -hmm. self and to give us the world in a brand new way, right? It a takes us beyond. Absolutely, yes. And, and ba Bateman, Bateman, Bateman thinks of it only as a reinforcement for the self. He is imprisoning himself within his own flesh, surrounded by Robert Palmer albums, Genesis covers, <laughs> and Huey <laughs> Lewis. And I think like there's kind of two things going on here, and like the, the first to return to Lincoln Park's hybrid theory is like. <laughs> That, that, that album, uh, you know, like, it, it, it's very much about depression, right? Like, like it is very much an album about sorrow, you know, it, and, and, not, and, not the, and not a melancholic sorrow, but an active gnawing sorrow, right? It, it, is, it is a death of being infested with bot flies, that kind of sorrow. But, but to be someone experiencing that kind of depression and to listen to that album, I was uplifted. I was like, oh, there, there are not only are there other people going through this, but there are other people who have managed to find such a path through this that they could make this art. You know, that that is a connection that trend for, for a brief moment. Linkin Park's hybrid theory, the best album of 2000 and one of the best albums <laughs> of, of our millennium uh, transcended alienation right it made it made this connection that broke the bonds of time and culture uh and that is incredibly powerful and that is what patrick bateman misses uh because uh to to completely sink the wonderful point and and, and my my high-minded talk uh patrick bateman is gatekeeping <laughs> yeah like the whole point the whole point of culture is is for bateman at least it's exclusionary potential, right? Yep. It's something that he can lecture the world with, pro prove his own quote-unquote... Like, these don't sound like like engagements with art. They sound like advertising copy or they sound like reviews that he's read. That's yeah, really absolutely. And, and so, I think it's, it's important to highlight here that he's like... When, when, when I say he's gatekeeping, I don't mean in the jokey sense where he's like only C-suite executives can listen to Mariah Carey. I mean, in the sense where, like, when, when someone tries to tell you what a piece of art is about, they 
are either trying to con you with something or they don't understand like like they, they have a, a bad ability about communicating about culture right because like you know you we can talk about what art means to us and we can interpret art you know like we do on this show all we do is interpret art through through various different political and psychological and cultural lenses right we're never telling you we're not telling you what american psycho is about we're we're offering ways to look at american psycho we're we're a kaleidoscope you know and like that is what patrick bateman misses patrick bateman misses that his own way of viewing the world is projection, right? We all project. It's it's kaleidoscopic in nature. And and he wants to reduce it. He wants to be able to say that that you know like Whitney Houston's albums are internal to him. You know, he has unraveled them. He has understood them and he has these it, it would not shock me if if he was practicing those monologues about Whitney Houston's uh discography you know, in the shower or in the mirror, you know, just, yeah, just repeating them as a mantra. Of course. Yeah, of course. Of course. Like, because really, because really, the, the, the thing that kind of, fit, like, made this click for me is like, he's in a car with Evelyn and he says he's trying to listen to the, to the new Robert Palmer. Um, and Evelyn says, why do you even work there? Like, you're, you're far, you know, you're, you don't need to work there. Your father owns the company. Oh, yeah. And he turns around and says, because I want to fit in. And it's like, this is this is the whole point around his aesthetic, his performance of aesthetic engagement is it's it's human human camouflage. It is the appearance of subjectivity. That's what it is. It's an attempt to go, oh well, he's a he's a guy who's into music. That's a person, that's a type of guy. I could be that type of guy, but there is no actual guy beneath it all. Totally. And the same is the, and the same is true for the way that he talks about like political or social issues in public, at least. And we 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 now need to begin our discussion of uh, presidential candidate Patrick Bateman of the Democratic Party. No, no, I think he would be an advisor. He's like advisor to Kamala Harris, Patrick Bateman. Oh, I. I one hundred percent think so. The way that Patrick Bateman talks about social issues, we need we need to look at this. I think really closely for a second because I think this is one of the one of the most important next next to the the parts of this movie that connect to Lincoln Park's hybrid theory. This is probably the second most important thing that I think is going on in this film, at least in terms of contemporary political culture. Um, we have to look at how Patrick Bateman talks about politics, right? Um, because he is always talking about politics when he's with the boys, you know, like, like they are very, uh, I, I don't want to say concerned, but they're actively engaging with political issues, right? And we need to look at how they talk about them because it is entirely hollow, right? Right. Pa Patrick Bateman knows the linguistic signifiers that people use when they have, when they are progressive. He's, he's talking about women's gender equality. Right. He's talking about ending hunger, you know, he, he's and he's speaking about them collectively or, or calmly with, with a collected attitude. You know, he is delivering this with the exact same cadence that that Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or Joe Biden would deliver a presidential speech. Yeah. You know, he, he, he lacks he lacks the frantic hatred that kind of defines the the long political trajectory of the Republican Party. So, so this makes him kind of democratic in, in these modes. When I say democratic here, I mean in the American political party sense 
what, what did you think about that? Like, did you connect that all uh, to like political issues in the UK or UK politics? I mean, this is a, I mean, this is deeply American, right? This is like I would have never American. guessed. <laughs> like, so so not really. I think American Psycho, American. Wow. Um, or, or in terms of its in terms of its kind of political climate, right? There hasn't been the same kind of homogeneity yet. And I think in the 80s, British politics was in some in some very important ways quite radically different to this kind of like yes <laughs> Re- 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 Reaganist Reaganist hypercapitalism that kind of nods towards a sort of social liberalism. Um, yes. So what's what's fascinating is that like uh, it's it's there's a kind of term used in linguistics for communication that doesn't convey any semantic content. Um, mm-hmm. Which is like, which is like, uh, phatic communication. So if you go, oh hey, how, how, hi, how are you? I'm not really asking. You know, if you go, oh hey, you know that that isn't trying to convey anything. It's just trying to kind of like establish communication on some level. Um, and that's what this is. Everyone kind of nods and smiles, but literally nothing is made different. Um, and some of them might even go, yeah, wow, he's he's right. There's a couple of characters who go. Patrick, you're so sensitive, but like nothing happens, right? There's no, again, there, there's just a void floating here. There's, there's like, well, we have to do this. You know, the, the big speech he gives in the restaurant is like about ending homelessness. And then uh, in like the next scene, he's stabbing a homeless man to death and then kicking yep. his dog to death. It's like, <laughs> there's no, all of this is just noise. It's just noise. Oh, a- absolutely right, and, and like it's not—it's not that it's just noise, but it's hollow political posturing, right? Like, like his his talking about ending hunger and and supporting equality—he undermines every single thing he he claims to say are important world issues, right? He has the immediate power to end this uh, uh, unhoused man's condition, right? He's got enough money to just snap his fingers and, and give this man a better life. Right. He's concerned about gendered equality, yet he's literally got women hanging up in his closet on coat hangers. Right. You know, like this is the same political posturing that that we're dealing with right now in our current political moment. Right. You know, we we have like that that Pokemon go to the polls attitude where in three emojis or less. Show me how you feel about your student loan debt being. And then, you know, we have like sitting American congressmen. Who are like, oh, gee whiz, pop! I sure wish someone could do something about these important societal issues, uh, which it partly reflects the systemic nature of problems, but largely reflects or largely just kind of tells on themselves their own unwillingness to do something outside of posturing. Yeah, their own essential kind of inability to act in the world in a, a, a outside of a very narrow, violent class interest. Um, it's a kind of refu- in a way, in a way, this kind of that speech that he gives is a refusal of the political. Oh, right? totally, it, yeah. It it doesn't. It's not even. It's not even um, just a posture towards politics. It's it closes down political conversation, right? It ends the political, and this is this is the whole kind of Republican Thatcherite point, right? Is to shrink the space in which. Uh, the the uh, a kind of national politics, as in the role and function of the st- of the state itself, can be shrunk down to almost nothing. So th- of course, of course, this is exactly the kind of thing they would say because by saying it, 
you actually make doing anything about it almost impossible. Absolutely. I, I think you're you're 100% correct. Unsurprisingly, I think your opinions are entirely correct and people <laughs> should give you more money to hear them. Uh should we should we talk about should we talk about um should we talk about the the just dudes, the guys being dudes in this? Yeah, we yeah, we we need to we need to guys guys uh put put down Put down your uh, cocaine that has been cut with sweetener. Uh, put down your brand new suit jackets. Put down the the sea urchin ceviche. Yeah, put put please put down the nail gun. <laughs> we gotta we gotta br- br- huddle huddle up. We gotta we gotta bring it on in here. <laughs> um, what? Okay, so as as uh. As dudes watching this film, which is very much about guys and all of the awfulness of uh, of of patriarchal violence, what what how do we how do we kind of make sense of this? How do we how do we talk through this? Well, I, th- I think this is like this is one of the more interesting things uh, about how this movie positions gender and bodies and space, right? Because like. For me, one of the important things is like Oliver Stone's. You're 100% right for your earlier take. Oliver Stone's version of this movie would have made Patrick Bateman so unbearably cool. Yeah, the the movie would have been in love with him. Yeah, the movie would have been in love with Patrick Bateman. All, all of, so all, all of the cultural accoutrement he hangs on himself, the fancy suits, the nice cars, the, the endless stream of money the 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 high flying big city job right all, all of those things that would be super cool uh, under the hands of a different filmmaker are absolutely boring uh with with this manifestation of Patrick Bateman and I think that's incredibly important right because y- you don't want to be Patrick Bateman the the movie specifically communicates without directly telling you this that he is not enviable this is not the kind of man you want to be the way he is in the world is shit <laughs> and you do not want to be this guy. You know, yeah. the, the way he objectifies his, his secretary, the way he talks with his friends, you know, like it, it is so uncool. And I don't mean to diminish it by calling it uncool because coolness is, is such an, an important way of propagating cultural belief systems Right. Like, like if we make someone appear cool, people are going to want to be like them, even if they have horrible, wretched ideas. And that for me is really important because the text allows us then to, to get some distance between ourselves and Patrick, you know, and, and then therein talk about, okay, well, he's really uncool. What about the rest of the stuff that he's doing? What, what, what about yeah. the womanizing? What about the murder? What about like his hollow political speech? What yeah. are your thoughts? Well, basically, uh, th- there's, there's something kind of liquidationist about this film, right? Every, uh, like men are revealed to be these uh, hugely conformist, uh, kind of desperately empty husks you know, any sort of like subjectivity gets gets kind of liquefied out of them, uh, replaced by branding. Um, it's it's 
like if you look at this and think it think <gasps> it's so aspirational it, you you're wrong this is a nightmare this is this is this is terrifying this idea that uh any kind of sense of self might just vanish there's a really interesting bit like where one of them goes to rehab and comes back and like is not like chugging beer and like smoking scott anymore but is just like sipping mineral water and it seems like is there a person is there a person in the room with them uh and the rest don't really know how to treat them anymore so it's like there's th this this idea of being ground down into a sort of like brand laden slurry it's sort of terrifying absolutely and i think how how these do these these dudes being dudes aren't treating each other very well and I think that this is this is a minor point, I think, overall in the grand orchestration of, you know, Harrison's film here. But like, I think it's nevertheless important to highlight, right? You know, Patrick Bateman throughout the movie is shocked to find out that a lot of the guys that he hangs with don't know his name, don't don't know who he is, confuse him with other people constantly um, he, he's often surprised that they have such a low view of him. Um, but he shouldn't be because that's the view he has on all of them. You know, he, yeah. he, he sees himself as the, the quote unquote alpha male of the group, you know, um, in what we're, what this is kind of revealing to us is the, the complete lack of caring that kind of defines these, the, these male friendships, right? Like these guys are just positioned near each other they're not actually near they're not close that closeness needs to be nurtured and developed and grown part of their inability to grow this is a class issue right yeah. like like to be these c-suite vampires you know you have to jettison these attitudes uh, along the path yeah there is there is no kind of there is no kind of like recognition of not even class it's like even there is no kind of consciousness that goes beyond the individual right um it's 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 kind of terrifying so uh donald trump makes an appearance sort of he gets name dropped <laughs> what, what what do you uh, make of, what do you make of the name dropping of donald trump oh okay i mean it's a lot more explicit in the novel um but it's like uh donald trump is the ghost that is haunting american psycho <laughs> right if if you want to if you want to see what trying to be Patrick Bateman will turn you into, look at the president, the former president of the United States. So there's this moment where they're, I can't even remember where they are. Um, and it's like, Bateman turns around and goes, is that Donald Trump's car? And then later on, they're in a, in a restaurant and um, he turns around and goes, is that Ivanka Trump over there? So like Trump is the, is this kind of signifier, right? And, and if you think about it, Trump Trump is not really a person, right? He's he is he is now a kind of media conglomerate. He started out as being a name on a building. He started out as being a, a series of catchphrases that were performed on television. Like there, like the thing that's always struck me that's kind of like strange about him is that there is this. If there is a subjectivity, it's an incredibly weird one. You know what what is this person like? you know, just as a person. And it's almost impossible to answer. So it's like Trump is, as I said, I think Donald Trump is, is the ghost that haunts American Psycho. And if you look at American Psycho and you look at the American president of 
2016 onwards to 2020, um, there is a direct genealogical connection between the two. Oh, one, 100%. And I think it would be, it would be easy to be like, oh, well, Patrick Bateman is Donald Trump. But I think Patrick Bateman is at the very least mildly insightful. He at least recognizes that there's something hollow about his existence. Trump is one of the other guys that are in this movie. Trump is one of the nameless, forgettable, and completely interchangeable business vampires that Patrick yeah. Bateman hangs out with. Right. Yeah. Like, like that, that, that's why, you know, that's why he doesn't have a cameo. Right. You know, the Oliver Stone version, Pat, uh, Donald Trump would have had a cameo. You know? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. He, he he would have home alone toed uh, the Oliver Stone American Psycho. Um, home alone to Oliver Stone American Psycho is an activation phrase. I, I firmly believe that someone <laughs> out there just, just just like their eyes just lit up. <laughs> yeah, they just they just lit up and just walked out of the room <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of their C-suite business meeting, where for some reason they're listening to our show and their AirPods or whatever. Um, yeah, like no, no, there, th- like Trump is not Patrick Bateman. Patrick Bateman is a symptom. Yeah, right. He, he is, is not. He is no he is not person, a subject. Yeah. He is not a person. He is a symptom. You know, if you want the world that gives rise to uh, people like Donald Trump, to that kind of grotesque accumulation of uh, of wealth and of turning the the self into a brand is the world of Patrick Bateman, right? Bateman is a symptom. And, you know, it's, it's, I really think your pricey was like incredibly accurate. Why, thank you. I strive for at the very least incredible accuracy. <laughs> but I think this also speaks to like, approaching this movie as men talking about, men talking to men, right? Like if, if Donald Trump is one of the dorks in the background of this movie, that gives us some space, you know, some very, and some, when I say some space here, I don't mean like reclaiming my space kind of space. I mean like distance, distance from ourselves, right? The ability to reflect. And I think that that is, is absolutely critical when, uh, viewing the, the text of this movie. Um, yeah. You know, like thinking through kind of like male self identity, like looking at this film and going like, okay, uh this is what capitalism wants you to be this is what this is what every every slogan every brand every push towards uh more more and more and more accumulation uh wants to make uh kind of like human potential into i think i think the most telling scene for this too is is the sex scene Right, like yeah. the inf- infamous sex scene from American Psycho, right, where where Patrick Bateman is flexing and s- staring in the mirror at himself, flexing the entire time, and that's like th- this this kind of cis male patriarchal perspective on sexuality has nothing to do with sexuality and has everything to do with positioning. You know, yeah. it's 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 a, it's about the effectiveness of himself as a kind of cultural symbol, like like can he represent this kind of uh, Adonis like you know masculinized perfection on a on a symbolic and performative level. Yeah, it, but but it's but it's essentially like uh, empty desire, right? It's not like oh yeah, 
it's it's the least it's the least sexually charged, the least erotic sex scene uh, I've seen in a very long time. And I think like, I was um, thinking about know, that. Oh, go go on, go on. No, go on, go on. I was just gonna say I was thinking about the whole like because we've seen we've been seeing this stuff popping up on Twitter all year where people are like, do horror movies need sex scenes? No sex scene has ever added to a horror movie. And I'm like, just watch Amer- American Psycho. The sex scenes are vital to understanding this film because of how unsexy yeah. they are. Because yeah. every single sexual act in this movie is disgusting. You know, like, like th- this is the most, like, this is the oat bran version of sex. You know, like, like th- this, is, this is a flavorless wheat cracker, you know, of eroticism, right? Like, like this is the most anhedonic way of viewing it. It's not, in, not even in, like, a clinical sense. We've talked about that in other movies that have kind of a clinical eye towards human sexuality because they're trying to depict something else. Like I, I, ju- I just saw um, Ju- uh, Julia de Cournau's new film Ti- uh, Titan, um, and it is phenomenal and wonderful and amazing and exactly the kind of follow up to Raw I was looking for. And it's got a lot of sex in it. it. It is not an erotic movie in the slightest, right? It is using those sex scenes to do other other things, and that's what we see here in American Psycho. Yeah, because because that the sex scene of like him to, uh, uh, kind of flexing in the mirror, looking into the camera, is sexuality as again essentially performative and exclusionary Mm -hmm. um and is designed to and again it's it's recursive right if art if like there are there are there are three things generally that i think do this you know art sex and religion are, are are all about in some ways going beyond the limit of the self right um getting getting out of our out out of our own perspective you know, um, and this is this is so recursive. Like he looks at himself in the mirror. He's recording it for himself later. It's it's this kind of like just kind of skin crawlingly empty moment where this thing, which is supposed to be about human connection, uh, is reduced to being like the videotape that he'll watch later. Yeah, yeah, one one hundred percent. It's about the production of of this affective object. Yeah. Um, and speaking about the production of affective objects, it's hard to produce a lot of affective objects here at the podcast factory. It takes hundreds of non-unionized elves, thousands of days to make a single episode. Uh, your your Patreon subscription goes a long way to helping us not pay these elves to make our podcast episodes. I don't know why uh, this analysis. It's probably because we're in the American Psycho Zone, but now we're like the union busting C-suite executives working for Santa Claus who are forcing these elves to produce horror vanguard instead of toys for children. Uh, but to get us to stop <laughs> doing that, please give us money on our Patreon. Uh, thank you. Uh, that was easily one of the so smooth pro- promos we've ever so done. So buttery, butter. That that is smoother than the forty-seven different lotions I apply to achieve this complexion. <laughs> but so I, I think I think we should talk about two other characters. I want to talk about the uh, friend of this episode, Willem Dafoe, and uh, uh, yeah, fr- friend of the show, friend of the show, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, co- commonly known fact. Um, our, our yeah, mo- yeah. Everybody <laughs> knows. Everybody knows that all of the famous people that we like, Ash, listen to the. This is why we refer to them all as friend of the show. Uh, Willem <laughs> Defoe. Willem Defoe listens to Horror Vanguard. We we know this to be true. 
and in, in our hearts, in our hearts, I know this. Um, Willem Dafoe loves me. <laughs> <laughs> Willem Dafoe is real. Willem Dafoe uh, cares about you. Willem Dafoe is your friend. <laughs> my my, what would Willem Dafoe bracelet do? Is, is here is here to help us all. Um, um it, but it's only it's only Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin who listens to Horror Vanguard. <laughs> Nobody else. <laughs> he has to put on the costume before he, he listens. Has, he has to get into character. Um, no, but I, I want to talk about him and Jean. I, I think that might be a good way to wrap up our, our episode here. So, so let's talk about like Willem Dafoe and policing in class, and then we could talk about uh, the hero of the movie, Jean. So Willem, yeah, Will, Willem Dafoe uh, plays Detective Donald Kimball. Uh, who is investigating the the disappearance of Paul Allen, a man that Patrick Bateman 100% murders? Uh, yes, uh, he 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 very, very in in honestly in a in a genuinely delightful performance by Christian Bale. Um, it's it's really fun. <laughs> I know I know we've just been saying all of these kind of like terrifying things about the loss of subjectivity about our the ennui and alienation of our annihilationist capitalist nightmare. But Christian Bale fucking kills in this movie. <laughs> oh yeah. Although the, everybody, everybody is, does such a good job of acting in this movie. It's just like, and, and I don't know if that's like the directing bringing that out in them, but everybody is on peak performance in this one. Um, so Paul Allen uh, gets chopped up with an ax um, and uh, Bateman decides to try and make it look as if he's appeared as if he has gone to London by putting a, a few of his possessions in in luggage and recording a genuinely incredible vo- uh, answer machine message. Um, uh, but a detective turns up asking some questions. And what do you think about Donald Kimball? Well, it was a, w- one of the most common... So we've kind of like not talked a lot about privilege and we, we've talked a bit about feminism, but not quite in the way that it's been talked about in this, in the context of this film, because those are the two biggest discourses. Um, every, so much of what can be said about privilege in American psycho has been said elsewhere um, in reviews and interpretations of this film. Um, but we, we see that here, right? Like, you know, Detective Green Goblin Willem Dafoe is is so focused on catching Spider-Man that he is unable to see the fact that like Patrick Bateman is one thousand percent a murderer. Yeah, absolutely. Like, every, every time Willem Willem Dafoe's detective character goes to interview Patrick Bateman, he's like, P- Patrick Bateman says something like, "So, is this a murder investigation? Do you have any leads?" Yeah. As, uh, uh, do you think that maybe somebody hit him in the face with an axe while screaming about Dorcia? Right, and and like P- Patrick Bateman doesn't have an alibi, so he so he's constantly lying about stuff. He's like, oh, I was returning videos, I was out with friends, I was doing some other stuff, and like the detective knows he's lying the whole time and still can't put you know one and one together here. And and this is just like this is a function, you know. Like there's a lot of good critique about this film that discusses kind of the kind of the neurosis of Patrick Bateman as being the kind of void that forms from privilege, right? You know, he he is he is unable to gain any traction. There's no teeth in his reality, right? Like there, yeah. it's it's. I was thinking, another thing I was thinking Donald Trump's infamous line: he could shoot someone and no one would bat an eye. Patrick Bateman does shoot countless people 
in the middle of a busy city and no one cares you know uh because that that's the function of society i've been watching a lot of unsolved mysteries lately i've gone through like five seasons now just just marathoning this stuff and like the the, the show is just so culturally interesting and like part of part of that is is like you can see privilege functioning in episodes of unsolved mysteries right and, and they're little wrap-ups at the end of each segment where they let you know who's been caught and how much time they're serving. You know, there'll be like some dude who murdered a string of people and he serves five years and he's out, you know? And then yeah. and there's some like, you know, like like person of color who's a bank robber and they get like 50,000 years in super prison. <laughs> super prison. And this is exactly what's going on here in American Psycho. You know, you're completely correct, yeah. You're completely correct. Um, Kimball comes in very deferential. It's like the foe playing against type almost, and and is is gently just going. It does not seem to sort of respond that it's weird that this 27 year old who is like profusely sweating, wearing a mm. "I did not murder Paul Allen" t shirt, uh, <laughs> can't can't remember where he was like four days ago. He's he's like um, he's like stuffing Paul Allen's body in a wood chipper while Willem Dafoe is interviewing him, and Willem Dafoe is just like. Oh well, great to talk to you again. Bye. Um, and it's so it's such a good, like, just brutal like, exposure of the ways in which class position, like, the law does not serve people. The law serves capital and the interests of capitalism, right? And the 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 arbiters, the the embodiments of the law, the police, absolutely do. One hundred percent. He's rich. He's rich. So so why would he why would he have to worry? Right, and even even one of one of uh, D- Detective Green Goblin's lines is like a, a friend killing one of his friends. That's so ridiculous. There's no motive for that. And then he like scoffs. Uh, yes. And, yeah, yeah. And, and it's just, uh, oh, bro, <laughs> you're not detecting much here, are you? Um, I, and he goes, I I know I know how busy I know how busy you guys are. Oh, so my, that's my favorite scene uh, in the movie. I love that. So so, so detect, Detective Green Goblin. Is like I know how busy you C-suite guys are, and, and immediately uh, uh, the the man the man holding a bloody axe with Paul Allen's head still stuck to it shoves a bunch <laughs> of magazines and a Walkman into it into his desk drawer, you know, just to cover it the last minute, and like that, that's that's part of the revealing that's going on here, right? Because C-suite C-suite execs, like if you've ever worked with people who are executive level staff, they don't do a damn thing. No, of course not. Like, like I, in, in in past like manifestations of my life, I've had to work with these fucking vampires, and like they don't do anything. They they day drink, they go on vacation, they have meetings, in quotes. But those meetings are just like totally useless, and they'll they'll decide something like how round a logo needs to be, and then a graphic designer will actually have to do work. You know, like like they have they have no. They, so just slowly, slowly transforming into Karl Marx here. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start talking about the value form in a second. So we should move on to Jean. Jean, um, uh, the hero of this film. Let's talk about Jean, um, played by uh, Chloe Sevigny. Um, and there is... The, the relationship here is super interesting because... Bateman is is disgusting towards towards anything fe- uh, coded as feminine, um, and is particularly disgusting towards Jean. 
like criticizes her clothes, is sort of paternalistically misogynist towards her. Um, uh, and But there's a moment where they have a conversation about what Jean wants in life. And he seems sort of like genuinely confused, thrown. Yes, yes he, he's afraid. I, at, at, yeah. Yeah, what, so it was a 100%, right? So like Jean is his secretary, Right. And, and he is just as awful as as that relationship would suggest, you know, uh, but Jean is literally the only character in this movie that has an internality. Yeah. Right. And, and she's in the background. She orbits this movie like the goddamn sun orbits the earth. Right. She she shines and stands out because everyone else wait, in this wait. movie is other, cord. Other, other way around. Other way around. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> the sun, the sun orbits the earth, John. Okay, when cool. Yep. <laughs> we, we we we'll we'll get into this in a bonus episode, but I I I do not subscribe to the heliocentric model <laughs> that big pharma is trying to sell, okay? I'm I'm not uh into your astrologerisms. This <laughs> <Okay>. is <laughs> <laughs> just absolutely trying to turn me totally screwing that up into some kind of bit and failing in real time. <laughs> Um, um, no, but yeah, she, 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 she's the son of this movie, right? Everything else is kind of orchestrated around her presence in, in the most subtle way possible because she, she's a real character, right? And like Bateman is baffled by this entirely. And she's the only one who like rejects him, right? Like she, she goes on a date with him because like, oh, it's like the rich, hot guy from work asks you on a date. Why not? And then immediately she's like, oh, there's something, something's real weird here. I'm just going to leave. And she does, and she does, and, and Patrick Bateman is left sitting alone in the middle of the frame, confused and stunned. Because she she asks him, "Do you want me to leave?" Because there's the it's it's. I'm not even going to say it's like a it's like a nice scene. It's the closest this this film gets to showing the possibility of actual genuine human communication. So yeah, that that scene where he he says that he's going to take her out for dinner, um, and lies about being able to get a table at Dorcia. Haven't we all? <laughs> when in a really funny moment when he hangs up and she just goes, "But you didn't leave a name." It's like yep. he's he's so bad at this. He's such and, he's and such she, a dork. But because she is outside of that class orbit, right? She's she's the only working class character in this film, and she can see straight through him. Right, like yeah. she, her vision pierces through his hollowness, and that horrifies him because she's the only person that actually knows who and what he is, and even like she's the only one who figures it out. She's the only one that figures out that he's a serial killer in the entire movie. Everyone else is oblivious to this, including Patrick Bateman himself. You know, everyone is so oblivious to this that they just reject that these people could even be dead. You know, to to the point where reality itself gets confused at the end, except for Gene. Gene puts it together. Team Gene. Yes. Yeah. Um, and like it's it's such a small part, and it would be so easy to like to have it just be a kind of like meaningless interaction, or even just to make Gene another victim. Because we shouldn't we shouldn't like disguise what. Uh, actually happens in that scene he's about to murder her with a nail gun yeah like uh because that's that's how he understands people right 
People are commodities to be fetishized and literally torn into pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, until until there's the kind of possibility of something that's not that. Absolutely, you're you're one hundred percent correct. I, I think I think gene is the key to to under gene is the key to this. If if we make gene work, uh, uh, to to invoke uh, how George Lucas talked about Jar Jar Banks for no good reason. <laughs> um, but but gene gene is like you know when I talk about gene as the son of this movie, she's the core of it, right? Like like she she's in a world with like two D standees. And and like like her character, every time she's on screen, it's so dissonant and weird, right? Because she's a normal person who's alive. And like that scene where she's talking about like she doesn't really know what she wants to do with her life, and she's thinking about all these things that she could do and kind of weighing the ups and downs of them. And like Patrick Bateman is confused and horrified because everyone around him is content with being these vacuous C-suite vampires. Yeah, the idea of like, what do you want is such a strange question for any of them to have to answer. What do they want? They want the same thing that they wanted yesterday, which is more <laughs> consumption, the better reservation, the new suit. Mm-hmm. Like all they have, all they have are these wants, which are never really totally satisfiable. Yeah. But like the way that Gene talks about it is considers, considers it seriously as a question. Like what could the future possibly be that is different from the present? Gene, Gene is a micro rupture in capitalist realism in, in the text of this film. You know, she, she's actually being like, oh, what, what could, could what are these hauntological futures I could have? What is outside yeah. of this eternal now? And, and for Patrick Bateman, there, there is no future. There's no past. It's collapsed. There's only the I reservation mean- at the Dorsia. And if he ever got that, there would only be reservations at the better Dorsia. Yeah, absolutely. And that forever which is the literal point um uh of of his very final lines in the entire film right there is no new knowledge there is no deeper knowledge of the self there are no more barriers to cross there is nothing left right and even the very act of confessing the very act of trying to give up has no meaning anymore absolutely Fantastic point to to pivot pivot to our questions for the audience on. Scientists of all ages. Who? What? Brilliant. Gee whiz. Just brilliant. Uh, yeah. So uh, my question is about whether people have read this uh, the book that the film is based on and how um, how you would compare the book and the film. Uh, which one do you think is better? Which one do you think most accurately communicates its kind of mode of social critique and why? You know, we have talked about this film uh, mostly talking about the, the the men in this as we are both men. Um, there is a lot of really good feminist criticism and feminist writing about this film. So uh, I would be super interested to hear from our listeners who are not men um, what they think about this as a feminist piece of filmmaking. Ooh, that's, an, that's another good one. I like that one. Uh, my, my questions are, um, what do we make of the presence of wait staff in this movie? The, Ooh, way, the yeah. way the camera focalizes servers at restaurants and bartenders and their presence, I think is incredibly interesting and important. And I, I would be very curious to see what people have to say about that. Well, thank you so much to everyone for listening. Uh, please do let us know what you think. Please do uh, kind of let us know on social media. You can find 
both me and Ash on there and follow the show at Horror Vanguard. If you are an HV patron, please do let us know your thoughts in the Discord. And if you would like access to the HV Crypt, the spookiest leftist Discord dedicated to talking about horror movies and capitalism, um, then do check out patreon.com slash horror vanguard. I think that's pretty much everything, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's pretty much it. But we, we do have to get going because we have to make our 7 p.m. reservations at Dorsia that I... I'm able to get on the fly like that. Um, please ignore the duct tape and the nail gun and the style section that I've taped all around the crypt. Um, we, we can just forget all about those and the raincoat that I just put on. Let me put on that new Robert Palmer CD. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky. Spooky.